My name is Anna Warberry. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Climate Briefing. I'm Ben Horton and joining me down the line is my colleague Anna. How are you, Anna? Hi, Ben. I'm fine. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Oh my goodness, I can't believe how uh, how relieved I am to be able to say that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been a very long week, I feel it has been a long week and there's been a lot of, of interesting stuff going on at Chatham House. Not least some very interesting conversations around our topic for today's episode. Anna, why don't you tell us what we're focusing on today? Yeah, Ben. So in this episode, we're going to speak about how the upcoming US election might impact climate action, both in the United States and across the world. And we have two super interesting speakers lined up. Uh, I spoke to Amy Hardy, who is an energy and climate change reporter at Axios. And uh, we kind of set the scene. We spoke about what President Trump has uh, done related to climate change during his first tenure. And we also spoke about what uh, Vice President Biden is proposing on climate change and what role climate change plays in the US election. How about you? Who did you speak to? So I had the privilege of speaking to Jennifer Morgan, who is the executive director of Greenpeace International. And we approached this question more from the international dimension. I spoke to her a bit about how the international community has responded to Trump's position on climate change, whether they were surprised by his actions on climate change over the past four years, and what the prospects are for COP26 and the climate agenda going forward, depending on the result of the election. Cool. Let's have a listen. I'm delighted to be joined by Amy Harder, who is an energy and climate change reporter at Axios. Great to have you here, Amy. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you for inviting me on. So we're approaching the end of President Trump's first tenure. Could you please tell us about the president's approach to climate change and what he has done related to climate change over the past four years? Well, the president, before he went into the White House, had a pretty controversial, to say the least, track record on climate change. He had tweeted out comments saying that he thought climate change was a hoax and making fun of climate change whenever it was cold. He would tweet, oh, we could be sure you some global warming. So that was his recent positions uh, throughout the last decade. Uh, and while he was campaigning, he promised to withdraw America from the Paris Climate Agreement, which is, of course, the 2015 accord where virtually all countries in the world had agreed to significantly reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And so when he won, there was a bit of a shock, of course, across the world on a whole host of things, given most of the pundits didn't think he could win. But on climate change, you know, there was this conventional wisdom that people thought Trump wouldn't actually do the things that he said he would do, such as withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement. Now it's been almost four years and he's done everything he promised and even more. So, of course, he pulled us out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Now, technically, that process can't begin till, ironically, the day after the U.S. presidential election next month. But nonetheless, he has started the process to remove the U.S. And he's also worked to repeal pretty much every single climate change regulation that his predecessor, Barack Obama, had issued. There's a couple that the EPA, which is in charge of all of these regulations, have kept on the books in a much more narrow manner. So it's either scaling back the regulation significantly, so there's almost no impact at all on reducing emissions, or repealing them outright. 
But he's not stopped at Obama's regulations. He's even gone back to other presidential administrations and regulations that they have put in place to try to repeal those. So I think if you talk to even some conservative and industry officials in Washington, D.C., they would be surprised at how far Trump has pulled back the regulatory wheel in Washington. That sounds very concerning indeed. However, there is a bit of a positive story in the U.S., though, during these years as well. There has been a kind of a counter movement taking place at the subnational levels with a lot of cities and states taking quite significant steps forward when it comes to climate action. Before we dig into kind of what impact Trump's policies have had, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that story as well. Certainly. So, yes, there has been a pretty aggressive effort by states and increasingly and more lately, even companies, uh, corporations across the spectrum of industries uh, have called for more aggressive climate action. So on the state level, you really have leadership uh, from California and New York, you know, your typical, very liberal very populated states with people who really care about this issue. And and so given California in particular, California's leadership on this issue really created a big battle with the Trump administration uh, that's going to be tied up in court for many years, even regardless of how the election goes in terms of what the administration has set in motion. That all takes time to change, even if Joe Biden wins in November. And so these states, California, New York, but numerous other ones have also set aggressive goals to become essentially carbon neutral in the next two to three decades. And that's really significant. And I think it's largely, but not only in response to Trump, really uh, not having any leadership on climate change and in fact, leading on denying that it's a serious problem. One interesting development that I am observing is California's recent announcement that it's going to ban gasoline and diesel-powered cars in the next 15 years. Now, that's relatively soon when it comes to something like cars and infrastructure that turns over in about that time frame. And so, you know, the rubber is really hitting the road when it comes to these policies. And I'll be watching to see to what degree these states and to a lesser extent, corporations really double down if Trump wins the election. With that in mind, what impact would you say that Trump's policies have had to date in the U.S.? Well, the, the hard part about climate change is that it's a slow-moving problem. So, you know, unlike, for example, his immigration policies, which he issues an executive order on Monday, on Tuesday, it's having an effect at immigration at, at borders around the world. And so that's something that is unique when it comes to climate change. You don't have that type of instantaneous impact. So I think the long-term impact that it'll have, I think, will be something that we'll see over time. You know, many environmental and climate change experts are saying that if Trump wins again, that the climate change goals to be carbon neutral by 2050 will be essentially out of reach. I sort of reject that type of black and white framing. I think climate change is very much a spectrum and there never should be a point that it's too late because you can always make it less bad uh, with a problem like climate change. And so I think though it is clear that his policies will over time lead to more greenhouse gas emissions. So even if Joe Biden wins and comes in and reverses everything Trump has done for the past four years, And by the way, he will be doing that. He has promised if he wins that he would repeal, he would reverse everything that Trump did. It'll still have led 
to more of an increase in greenhouse gas emissions than would have otherwise happened. But I think that's really, from a technical standpoint, correct, but somewhat irrelevant because the United States emissions today are not really where the problem is. Of course, America is historically the largest emitter. So from a symbolic leadership perspective, the fact that Trump has essentially given up the global leadership when it comes to climate change, I think that is the most significant impact he has had on climate change is to really see that leadership to other countries, such as China, which recently announced that it's going to strive to be carbon neutral by 2060, which is just a staggering goal given how coal intensive that country is. And so I think the biggest impact of Trump's climate change policies is the seeding of global leadership and the the slow and, and relatively insidious when it comes to climate change science, the insidious efforts he's, his administration is doing to try to dispute the science of climate change. And I think overall, when it comes to these regulations, for example, he's repealed safety regulations for offshore drilling. Will that lead to an oil spill in, in 10 years? We don't know. It's hard to draw that direct line, but there is an increased risk of environmental problems with the relaxing of regulations. So what does President Trump himself say about his climate change and environmental policies? Well, one common talking point from President Trump and uh, his top officials is that America has led the world in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And in fact, in many ways, that's actually true. And so I don't want to dispute the facts on the ground, which is that natural gas has largely displaced coal in a lot of areas and therefore has reduced emissions because natural gas emits far less carbon emissions than coal. Um, but that's a trend that predated Trump and is occurring largely regardless of Trump. In fact, I wrote early on in his administration that if Trump actually fulfilled his campaign promise to bring coal back, by the way, he's not, but if he did, emissions would rise uh, because it would displace natural gas or even renewable energy both of which have combined to reduce emissions in America. First, it's been the amazing increase in natural gas production uh, that's reduced emissions, and then renewable energy as well, which has increased also to incredible amounts. And so I think it's important to give credit to the statement that, yes, emissions have dropped, but it's a more complicated situation than just saying, oh, emissions are, are dropping and it's thanks to us. I think it's also important to note that to significantly and adequately address climate change to the level scientists say we must, emissions in America and around the world need to drop a lot more than what they have, which has been, you know, maybe 9-10% over the last few years. They need to drop 50% or more over the next 20 to 30 years. And so that's something that I think the administration says, oh, emissions have dropped. Yes, that's true, but it's so much more of a complicated story. And I think that's that's an important to provide that context. Wouldn't it be more fair to say, though, that emissions have dropped despite Trump and not thanks to him, given these kind of broader developments in technology and yes. the falling price of renewables? Yes, I would say that emissions have dropped uh, despite Trump. And as I mentioned, he's taking credit for something that had nothing to do with him, which is something all presidents do. That in and of itself is not unique. But I think what's unique about this situation is that he's taking credit 
for emissions dropping while at the same time taking steps that would, over time, increase emissions. So there's a lot of hypocrisy when it comes to this administration's positions on climate change. But it is very clear, given the people he's put in top leadership positions and his very aggressive regulatory rollback, that he does not take climate change seriously. If Trump wins a second term, you know, I think there's actually a, a tiny outsized chance that Trump could begin to care a little bit more about climate change, only because Trump is so unpredictable that in a way that, say, Vice President Mike Pence is not unpredictable. If Pence suddenly became president, we would know that he would never address climate change meaningfully. Trump has proven to be unpredictable. For example, he recently agreed to ban oil and gas drilling off the East Coast. That's something most Republicans would not have done. And so I think there's the potential to be surprising. But if there's any sort of change on climate change with a second Trump administration, it would not come in the form of, say, for example, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement. It would be more minor policies, such as there's this uh, parallel environmental treaty put in place decades ago called the Montreal Protocol. And there's been an amendment to that protocol pending that would reduce another type of greenhouse gas that's found in things like air conditioners. And industry, air conditioner manufacturers and others actually support that amendment completely. Um, But Trump and the State Department have slow walked, taking a supporting position on that. I suspect if there's a second Trump administration that he could maybe eventually come out to support that type of policy and frame it as America leading on jobs and, oh, by the way, helping the environment as well. And again, I'm not saying this is likely, but if there's any sort of pivot, I expect it to be in some of these more tangential stories and not, for example, the Paris Climate Agreement. Moving on to the election, we have already spoken a bit about Joe Biden. Perhaps you could elaborate a bit on what he's proposing in terms of climate change. So Joe Biden has what I've characterized as the most ambitious climate change policy of any U.S. presidential candidate. And that sounds impressive, but it's not really that Joe Biden is uniquely ambitious on climate change. It's that the debate and the problem of climate change has become so much more urgent that it has made almost every segment of you know the American and global society more concerned about it, except for, I would say one exception, is the U.S. Republican Party, uh, continues to not see the urgency. I would say that that party has also evolved, however, uh, in the last few years as well. So specifically, Joe Biden's plans include having a carbon neutral electricity system in America by 2030. Now, that's a very ambitious goal. Right now, we're about two-thirds fossil fuels, uh, natural gas and coal. So trying to change that in 10 years will be a very heavy lift. A lot of experts think that it's actually not possible. But nonetheless, the goals are reflective of the ambition that the campaign has. And also, more broadly, he has promised to be carbon neutral, have an entirely carbon neutral economy. By 2050, he has pledged to not allow any new oil and gas leasing on federal lands. And that's an important policy, but it's also important to note that most oil and gas production in America, who, by the way, is the largest producer of oil and gas, most oil and gas is produced on private or state lands. So that that ban on federal leasing is actually not going to take as big of a bite out of oil and gas as one might think. And he's also really emphasized including unions, labor unions, in clean energy jobs. Uh, He's a big 
union guy. He always has been going back to his days in the Senate. And that's an important component because with the entire world and the U.S. in the depths of a terrible recession because of the pandemic, creating jobs while also addressing climate change will be critical. And so that, I think, is an angle that we perhaps would not have seen as much six months ago. But that if you listen to Biden carefully, you'll notice every time he talks about climate change, he talks about unions and jobs. And that's definitely not a coincidence. It is something that he's tying very closely together. Yeah, that's a really important aspect. I 100% agree. Does Joe Biden have any weak spots when it comes to climate change? I mean, there have, for instance, been a few question marks around where he stands on fracking. Right. Well, I I certainly, I, I think question marks, it all depends on your perspective, right? As a reporter who really, I pride myself on not taking positions. I report the news as I see it. But certainly there is controversy among a lot of climate change activists that he has not pledged to ban fracking. And of course, fracking is a controversial extraction method to get oil and gas out of the ground. His his running mate, Kamala Harris, has actually supported a ban on fracking. But I consider her position not irrelevant completely, but mostly irrelevant because it really does matter mostly what the top of the ticket um, has on this position. And so Biden has gone out of his way to say that he does not support a national ban on fracking because that would significantly impact the jobs in the oil and gas industry. He went to say that in Pennsylvania, which, by the way, is a huge battleground state, and I think one of the biggest, if not the biggest, producer of natural gas in America. And so I think one important part of this debate is that reporters such as myself and activists, climate activists and others, we spend a lot of our time on social media and things like that. But social media and Twitter and Facebook, those things embody such a tiny proportion of America's actual society. And and Joe Biden knows that. There's a lot of more moderate voters and union representatives in states like Ohio and Pennsylvania who may not be on Twitter, but they're going to vote. And those are the people who he's speaking to when he says he's not going to ban fracking. So although most of us hear that he's getting criticized for not banning fracking, there's actually this other side of society that we may not hear that are actually listening to that and liking that. Uh, And I think that's an important understanding as we go into the election, because I think that's one of the biggest blind spots that America had in 2016 is we, you know, we thought what Twitter was saying was what was going to happen at the election box, which of course is not at all what ended up happening. So how dependent is Vice President Biden on congressional support in order to deliver his climate agenda? Significantly so, as most presidents are. And I think it's open question whether or not he will really prioritize climate change at the very top of his agenda. And that matters because even though climate change is clearly a top agenda item for the Democratic Party, there's a lot of other items that are really yelling for the attention of Congress in a way that wasn't even here six months ago. So, of course, the economic recession is the big one. Also, the renewed focus on systemic racism in the wake of terrible killings and other instances with police and and people of color. And so I think all of that has really come relatively out of nowhere in terms of being a top tier political issue. And that has inevitably made it more complicated in terms of where climate change fits in. So I suspect Congress and Joe Biden, if he becomes president, will try to incorporate climate change into these other types of policies, such as a huge economic recovery bill, you know, with a lot of government spending and research and development and tax incentives. You know, I think he'll incorporate clean energy into that. 
very much like what President Obama did in 2009 with the Recovery Act after the 08 economic recession. In that legislation, the Obama administration poured some $90 billion into clean energy. The problem, though, with just putting what I call a down payment on clean energy technologies is that most experts say you need some type of market-based mechanism to keep the movement going. And I think, despite all the rhetoric, doing anything like a cap-and-trade system where you sort of limit the amount of emissions and then allow companies to trade emissions credits of emissions or a, carb, a straightforward carbon tax or something even more sweeping like the Green New Deal, which, by the way, Biden has gone out of his way to say he also does not support. Uh, anything like that would not only require Congress, but probably would not get the support, enough support in Congress. So I think if Biden wins, we are looking at another four to eight years of aggressive regulation and, you know, some bank shots when it comes to congressional policies, such as increased research and development funding. What about the Supreme Court? President Trump has just nominated Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. What kind of influence does the Supreme Court have over the possibilities of reducing emissions in the United States? Yes, yeah, certainly the Supreme Court and the court system in general, frankly, will probably have an outsized role and has already had an outsized role in America's climate policy, given Congress had really refused to enact anything on any sort of lasting basis. And so obviously it remains to be seen whether or not um, Barrett is confirmed. That's obviously a very controversial process here in the United States. I think the perhaps biggest upshot of that, Barrett herself doesn't have too much of a track record on environmental issues. I think it's safe to say that she'll be a pretty solid conservative vote. But the thing that I'll be watching is that the, the way the Supreme Court works, you actually need four justices to agree to take a case. So that means if Barrett is confirmed, the three remaining liberal justices will need to get the support from at least one conservative justice to even see a case. What that means is that cases brought by environmental groups and others from a pro-climate change perspective may find it harder to even see the light of day at the Supreme Court, which could perhaps be troubling for you know all sorts of reasons, given most of Trump's biggest regulatory rollbacks on climate change are snarled up in the courts. And that's something that I'll be watching. You know, there's a big there's been some discussion about whether or not the historic landmark 2007 Massachusetts versus EPA Supreme Court case, which ruled that the federal government has the right to regulate greenhouse gas emissions whether or not that could be overturned. I think that's not something that's within the realm of happening anytime in the next five years. I think there would need to be a lot of efforts to do that. But nonetheless, I mean, that becomes, that gets into the orbit of the world of possibility if Barrett is confirmed. So how big of an issue is climate change for voters in the United States ahead of the election? Well, climate change, when you look at the polling by Pew and Gallup, Climate change is the most polarizing issue, even more polarizing than things like abortion. And so that's something that I remind people of constantly, that when you look at polling and you see, oh, you know, 67% of Americans are really concerned about climate change, that may be true, but it's really, it's, it's incredibly divided over what party you're in. So lately, there's been polling that shows that climate change is actually one of the top concerns among Democratic voters, you know, right up there with health care. 
And that's a significant increase. And and it seems to be staying up there even amid the recession and the coronavirus and uh, increased focus on systemic racism. And so uh, Democrats are uh, increasingly concerned about it. Republicans are not, however. Their concern about climate change has not increased really substantially at all over the last several years. And so you see this growing division. I also think it's important to emphasize that a lot of Democrats, you know, those living in Seattle, Washington and California and New York, these states are already very liberal. And so, you know, they would vote for Biden regardless. And so the more moderate Democratic voters are the ones whose votes, you know, I hate to say this, where every vote matters. But in this case, given how the U.S. electoral system works, when they're living in these battleground states, their votes carry more weight. And and their concerns are perhaps not as much about climate change as some of these voters in the more liberal coastal states. And so I think on a whole, yes, Americans are growing more concerned about climate change. But if you just go one layer down, it's a very choppy picture with Republicans pretty much staying pat, increasing a little bit, and a more tangible increase in Democrats. But even there, I think it matters where you're looking. Great, thank you very much. So I have one final question, and it is perhaps a bit sneaky. Who do you think would win the election? Oh, gosh, you know, I love the fact that Axios pays me to know all about climate change and oil and gas and renewable energy, um, but they don't pay me to know how the election is going to go. The way I view things is I, I look at the world of possibilities. I think one humbling moment I had was back in the 2016 election. Uh, at that time, I was at the Wall Street Journal uh, which is where I was before Axios. And I remember my editor saying the day of the election, can you please pre-write a couple of paragraphs about the energy and climate policies of Clinton and Trump? And so I wrote Clinton's and it was pretty long and detailed. And and then I was like, well, I should just write a few paragraphs about Trump just in case. And then of course he won. And I'm sure as heck glad that I wrote those few paragraphs. <laughs> so that was a humbling experience. I think a lot of people obviously we're humbled that night. And I think that's the same course of action I'll be taking this time. I'll be doing pre-writing of, I've already written so much about both of these candidates and, you know, politicians positions so far um, that I think I'll be ready no matter what. But even though this election is not really about climate change, it's about so many other things. I think this election will matter so much for climate change, just given Uh, how much American leadership is essential to make action on this front. So either way, you know, I'll definitely be staying up late on on election night and and definitely have some pre-written analysis ready to go, no matter how it comes down. Thank you very much, Amy. This has been super interesting. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much. So now I'm delighted to be joined by Jennifer Morgan. Jennifer is the Executive Director of Greenpeace International and formerly the Global Director of the Climate Programme at the World Resources Institute. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, great to be here. So we've already heard on this episode about the minutiae of the climate politics in the US election, but I just wondered if we could kind of zoom out and look at this from a more international perspective with you. So Just thinking about the last few years and the actions of the uh, Trump administration in the climate space, what do you think has been the impact at a global level of President Trump's kind of stance on, on climate issues? 
Well, I think generally it's been a rallying call for others to move forward with the Paris Agreement. You know, we saw many countries making clear statements when Trump first was elected and indicated that he was going to then pull the U.S. out of Paris, that they were going to continue. Uh, There's been no country that stepped back. And I think just, you know, for historical reasons, one needs to remember what happened after the U.S. pulled out of the Kyoto Protocol. There were some that stayed the course, but there were many who didn't. And so I think what we've seen is indeed almost like a coming together And you've seen that recently with the announcement from Xi Jinping from China, you know, indicating that they're going to go forward and do more, that there is that kind of, I think, greater depth of commitment and breadth of commitment than than you had in the case of the U.S. pulling out of Kyoto. But of course, you know, things slow down, especially in a body like the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which operates on the basis of consensus. So... Although the U.S. has less influence in those negotiations because they're stating that they're going to withdraw, it just makes it more difficult. It's almost like having to walk through thick mud to get anything done rather than having a clear path for movement. And I think it's allowed some, for example, the Bolsonaro government to try to hide behind the Trump administration. So it's been mixed, but clearly you know, as the impacts of climate chaos happen and people are seeing what it means, and then they hear this president that doesn't even accept or understand the science and actually denies it, I think the other thing that's happened is it's really reduced the weight of the U.S. stance and its standing in the world um, because the position is just so clearly untenable. And I don't know how long it will take to rebuild that if there is a new administration coming in. Just still on the recent history of this, do you think that the other kind of major players in the sort of climate agenda were surprised by how the Trump administration approached this issue? Do you think they saw coming what what ultimately happened with the Paris Agreement, etc.? I don't think anybody could foresee how deeply problematic, immoral, you know, corrupt this administration, this Trump administration could be. I mean, as the scientists clarify and as as the impacts hit and as people, you know, are facing such tragedy, I just don't think the international community could imagine that someone could come in who would just basically give the pen to the fossil fuel industry to roll back so many environmental regulations. I think it's been quite a shock and made it difficult to know how to even engage with it. And therefore, they've just had to go on without, in a way, the U.S. and do what they can because there's nobody to negotiate with. It's so clearly out of the realm of anything acceptable or or possible to negotiate with. Now, looking ahead, we've got the election coming up in November, and then 2021 is looking like it's going to be quite a significant year in the climate agenda. Obviously, we have COP26 being delayed until until 2021. And then As we emerge, hopefully, out of the coronavirus pandemic, there is all this talk of of how the economic and social recovery from the pandemic can be done in a green, sustainable way. Against that kind of context, what do you think the possible re-election of Donald Trump might mean for global action on climate change? Well, I think a re-election of Trump would mean a need for a doubling down in other countries to move forward and to actually, you know, stay the course 
be working across countries with cities on the local level and intensifying all of that. I also think it would mean them having to consider how they're going to potentially have some kind of consequences on the United States for not participating in the Paris Agreement. Maybe that part of the Paris Agreement could be spelled out more clearly, because right now it's a quite vague process uh, with there are no consequences besides kind of transparency for parties that aren't meeting or parties who uh, withdraw. How different do you think the picture would be if we see Trump defeated in November and and a Biden presidency? Obviously, in, in your first answer, you mentioned that the impact of the Trump administration's actions over the last four years are going to take a long time to unpick. But do you think that for COP26 and maybe sort of this immediate short term future of the climate negotiations, do you think Biden would make a, a serious difference? Well, I have to say, I don't think I've ever seen such a stark choice between two two candidates. And I do think that having a, a president and a vice president, because I think Kamala Harris's record is also impar- important from a global mm. perspective as well, it would turn that mud I talked about more into potentially into AstroTurf and remove these barriers and uh, make it possible to actually work together again and to have a multilateral approach and cooperation. It will, however, you know, be quite dependent, I think, on what the U.S. is able to do domestically because climate domestic diplomacy internationally is very connected with national action and national mm-hmm. laws. And so I think that will be a key part of it. And I also think that it will require some humility on the U.S. part. You know, it's been a bit of a yo-yo that the world has had to deal with. The U.S. is in, it's out, it's in and out. And this administration right now has been so dismissive of of its allies and its partners that I think um, even a Biden-Harris administration would would need to, to really come back in a very thoughtful, clear, but very thoughtful way and make it clear that they're going to be there for the vulnerable countries around the world, that they're going to be there, not only on the emission reductions, but also on the financing and shift their financing out of fossil fuels, et cetera, to have any credibility or the credibility that that would be needed. Finally, I, I just wanted to turn away from the US briefly. You mentioned earlier that China created headlines this week after Xi Jinping announced updated climate ambitions during his address to the UN General Assembly. I just wondered, could you tell us a bit about what you think the significance of these announcements is and also whether China is overtaking the U.S. as a potential sort of global leader on climate change? Well, I think the signal that Xi Jinping gave, which was that China was going to work to peak its emissions before 2030, and he added a new goal, which was climate neutrality before 2060, was indeed a very significant uh, and surprise move by China. And I think the significant comes from the fact that it it wasn't done in a tit-for-tat or kind of cooperative way with the United States as it was done last time. It was done a week after an EU-China summit and in the midst of the EU moving on a green deal. Hopefully, the Chinese announcement can inspire European leaders to go further and go for a 65% reduction, which is what would be required out of Europe, I think, to be put in forward ambitious and equitable commitment. 
And it really does, in a way, open the space for some international momentum on this. And, you know, December 12th is the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement. Uh, This is the year that all countries were supposed to come forward with their updated commitments. And so I think it's a bit game on, you know, in that space. Whether China is now a new leader, I think we need to see what this, this signal means. We need to see what it means for coal development in China, what it means for its lending practices in other countries and whether how it, how it um, deals with its coal financing. We need to see the plans that would come out of that. Leadership is a big word, and it requires significant transformational action at home and a way of collaborating internationally that just catalyzes everything forward. Thank you. And then, and then just finally, this may be a bit of a strange question, so apologies, but with all of all that's going on and obviously the election uncertainty and the pandemic and all of this sort of bleak context, are you optimistic that COP26 can achieve some real progress in the climate negotiations? And what do you think it would require beyond what you've said already to achieve that? Well, I think it has to. <laughs> I am optimistic because <laughs> I think there's a lot that is happening right now that can be grasped and turned into a moment where people can look back and say they got it. For example, making sure that these green recovery packages are really green and that the fossil fuel industry, which is now grasping at the last straws to try and claim back uh, what it, where it was before, uh, I'm optimistic because of the, you know, the people who are showing up in the streets and fighting for their rights to be protected and have a stable future. I'm optimistic because it's so clear that there's a better world that can be created out of all of this disruption that has greater health care, has greater social justice, and has greater climate stability in it, and that there are people out there fighting for it. Government needs to grasp that. It needs to understand that its presidency needs to be a moment where it, we, we reshift the hierarchy of norms, where these issues of human rights, justice, climate, labor rights are the things that are guiding our way forward, not short-term economic growth. And that's the chance, and that's what we're all fighting for. Jennifer Morgan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Two really fascinating interviews there. Anna, judging from those interviews that we just heard, what do you think is going to be the significance of the 2020 US election? Is it really going to be a kind of turning point potentially in this whole process that we've been discussing throughout the whole of the climate briefing? Is really that much riding on this election? I think I really agree with our interviewees. It's very clear that the presidential candidates have completely different approaches to climate change. They are as far apart as you can get, essentially. And we also know that the next few years are critical when it comes to reducing emissions, if we're going to have any kind of chance of reaching the goals to the Paris Agreement. So there is a lot at stake. The US is the second largest emitter in the world. It really needs to step up its game. And what it does really does have an influence on what other countries do. So the stakes are super high. And I guess we'll just see what happens. We will indeed. And maybe in a future episode, we can get one of our colleagues back on to to talk about the results. But that is it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening to The Climate Briefing. If you've liked what you've heard, then you can check out all of our previous episodes on our website or on whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this. If you could 
like and subscribe to our podcast. Maybe leave us a review if you could. That would be tremendously appreciated because it helps other people find us. And if you want to hear more about the work that Chatham House does on environmental issues and climate change, then you can follow our Energy, Environment and Resources program on Twitter at ch underscore environment. Until next time, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Anne And this is The Climate Briefing. Mm-hmm.